Hello, my name's Maggie Taggart and I've been a broadcast journalist and TV and radio presenter for over 40 years, mostly with the BBC in Northern Ireland. For this series of podcasts on making equality a priority, I've linked up with the Equality Commission to highlight the need for reform of Northern Ireland's equality laws. Today we're talking about the gender pay gap. The gender pay gap is a measure of overall average differences in the earnings of men and women within an organisation, sector or across the board. When we look at all employees in Northern Ireland, including full-time and part-time, there is a gender pay gap in favour of men. That is not the same as saying women's salaries are generally lower than men's for the same roles. It's more to do with the patterns of working which disadvantage females. And very shortly, we'll hear what those are. There were plans for important changes in the law in Northern Ireland, but they have stalled. There is legislation in the rest of the UK to monitor and report the gender pay gap, but it could go further. That's being encouraged by the Fawcett Society, which campaigns for women's rights. To discuss that, my guests are Catherine McNichol from the Equality Commission's Policy and Research Team and by Alex Shepherd, Senior Policy and Public Affairs Officer at the Fawcett Society. Catherine, we'll kick off with you. Now, people generally know that it's illegal to offer women less pay for the same job being done by a man. So let's start with you to spell out what is the difference between equal pay and the gender pay gap. So equal pay rules require that individual men and women performing the same work in the same organisation must receive equal pay. The principle we all know that equal pay, equal work should get equal pay. What we're here to talk about today is the gender pay gap which is a wee bit different. It is generally calculated as the difference between the median hourly earnings, excluding overtime, of males and females. So what the average man earns for an hour's work and what the average woman earns for an hour's work. The gap can be caused by things like occupational segregation, part-time working and caring responsibilities, which mostly lie with women. The gender pay gap may include unlawful inequality in pay, but that's not necessarily the case. It is important to underline that tackling those gender pay differences makes good business sense, benefiting individual businesses, the wider economy and helping women fulfil their potential in the workplace. So can you tell us a little about the gender pay gap in Northern Ireland and how it affects people here? So the gender pay gap is a wee bit different from Great Britain. If we look at both full-time and part-time employees, last year women here earned an average of £12.36 an hour and men 13 11 so considering all employees, regardless of working patterns, for every pound earned by a man, women earned 94p. Interestingly, if you look only at full-time employees or only at part-time employees, women actually earn slightly more on average an hour than men. However, hourly earnings are generally higher in full-time jobs. The average man in part-time employment earns around 9.90 an hour compared to 14 pounds in full-time jobs. And the average woman earns around 10.20 an hour in part-time work rising to around 1460 hourly wages in full-time work. Because over 80% of men work full-time, compared with less than 60% of women, the gender pay gap is in favour of males when considering all employees, and that's excluding overtime. It's important to recognise that these figures are averages and there's difference between all the different sectors. For instance, the gender pay gap is considerably wider in the private sector than in the public sector. Appreciate that's an awful lot of numbers, so if listeners want to have a look at the figures themselves, NISRA, the Government Statistics Agency, releases them all on the website. Thanks, Catherine. Alex, welcome to you at the Fawcett Society, based in London and speaking to us down the line. 
Now, with equal pay laws already in place, why is there a gender pay gap? Can you can you explain what's happening in the workforce to disadvantage women? There isn't one real cause. Um, rather, there's a bunch of different intersecting things all coming together. Pay discrimination is one of several factors that contribute to the gap. And while it varies by study, what we're finding is that at least a third of the gender pay gap isn't explained by things like occupation, industry, work patterns, or having children. Other factors include unequal shares of caring work in the home, which is done by men and women, resulting in women doing more part-time work. We then have poor recruitment practices that bake in gender, race and disability inequality, such as asking for salary history and not advertising jobs with salaries or giving flexible work options. The undervaluing, of course, which has happened uh, in terms of the types of women that work that women do. There's also the lack of women entering some well-paid careers, such as science and engineering, which we know is a result of societal constructs and stereotypes about the role that men and women have in society. And lastly, there's a real role of organisations here as well, in the sense of they're failing to promote women within organisations and giving them opportunities the same as they would extend to men. So I think in this space, there's a bunch of different things that are coming together, which are really contributing to that gender pay gap. And gender pay gap reporting is a crucial tool in enabling us to identify that data, track it, and implement tailored and targeted solutions. But there's also a bigger story here in the sense that this requires whole of government action, working together on a bunch of different things in order to implement meaningful policy solutions. Now, you're a step ahead of Northern Ireland in that you already have gender pay gap monitoring in England, Wales and Scotland. So how is that working and, and can it make a difference? Definitely. Early evidence is showing that the system we've introduced is really having an impact. Um, The way that we're able to make these conclusions is through emerging evidence, particularly from some academics at LSE, which shows that it's had an effect in terms of closing pay gaps at firms who are required to report under the scheme. So analysis of changes in the gender pay gaps between organisations that were just below and just above the 250 employee cutoff point for reporting that we have. And the reason why I go into that much detail is that you would expect those organisations that are just below and above to be quite similar, and therefore we can make these comparisons in terms of analysis, reveals that where the reporting requirements were in place, the policy led to a 1.6 percentage point increase in women's hourly wages relative to those of men. This means that the gap was closed by about 90% in these companies. What we're also seeing is that many employers are using gender pay gap reporting as a valuable opportunity to really look at their workforce data and use it to inform decisions about pay structures by delving into the details and examining the underlying causes of those gaps. Also, from an employer perspective, I think we need to be cognizant at this point in time that the labour market is really quite tight. So taking action to close the gender pay gap really makes organisations more attractive to work for, particularly for women. So polling that was done by the Equality and Human Rights Commission shows that nearly two thirds of women take the gender pay gap into account when considering to apply to a new job and that 58% of women would be less likely to recommend their present employer if they had a pay gap. So we know that in the sense of behavioural responses and how people think about these things, it's having a real tangible impact. So does it seem to you that that organisations are taking feedback from women perhaps not accepting a job when they don't like the way that their gender pay gap is reported? Definitely. So in the sense of how employers are getting that feedback, 
we imagine that in the sense of when they hear back from potential applicants, if that's been given as a reason. Um, but of course, the data that we have in terms of the gender pay gap isn't um, specifically um, giving us that particular information, but that data, which the EHRC that I just mentioned, is definitely pointing to that being a really strong factor in the way that uh, employees are making decisions about their next career pathways. Catherine will be explaining what the proposals have been for that legislation in Northern Ireland, but can you just go through what the monitoring responsibilities are in England, Wales and Scotland and, and whether firms are actually adhering to it? In terms of who is responsible for that in the Great Britain, it is the AHRC. Um, and so in terms of our most recent pay point, our snapshot data, that about 9,872 employers have published their gender pay gaps within the required deadline. A few are still coming in. Um, and based on previous years, we think there's probably about 600 to 700. Um, in terms of the process, employers had until the 4th of April 2022 to publish their gender pay gap statistics relating to a snapshot period, which was the 5th of April 2021. Um, in the sense of organisations that are required to um, report, it's those with 250 employees or above. Um, there are variations in Scotland and Wales and also in accordance with whether you're a public body, but on the whole, that's kind of what we can say. That's one of the things which we actually think uh, needs to change. We think that that threshold is too high. It means that you aren't capturing a really large number of employers, which means we're not getting that really important data um, that is out there about where are the gender pay gaps in those smaller to medium-sized businesses as well. So if they don't monitor and report, are there any sanctions? In terms of sanctions, at the moment, we've actually got really high compliance and a lot of comparative research has been done in the system, which particularly being led from the Gender Institute for Women's Leadership, um, which we were a part of, which shows Great Britain's had really high compliance rates. And we think that that's a product of the way in which the system is designed and built. Um, in the sense of what we think should be done going forward, we're calling for mandatory action plans. Uh, we think at the moment the requirement just for employers to publish data is great, but we actually need to be holding those employers to account and ensuring that they're doing things that actually close the gender pay gap. It's good to know that the pay gap exists, um, but what we need to be doing is actually closing that. So if we implement those systems by having action plans, we can monitor and see what organisations are doing to improve. Um, and as part of that, we will need to think about what the EHRC has in terms of their powers to monitor those particular action plans. So legislation in GB has been in place since 2018. So you're obviously thinking it's not strong enough. You need extra measures. What would you suggest? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that we've been advocating and calling for for a while now. And before going into those things, I do think it's important to note that the system which we have here, there are things that are working really well. So as I mentioned before, that comparative research that's been done actually looked at a bunch of different countries, including Germany, Australia, France, South Africa and Spain. And it shows that we are really leading the way in terms of transparency and really high levels of compliance. However, we are behind in other areas. So, for example, compared to other countries, as I mentioned, we don't require employees to take action to reduce the gap. Um, also, the threshold is really high in terms of the minimum number of employees. Um, and lastly, we think we're missing out on really important data, for example, by not collecting ethnicity pay gap information as well. So there are a couple of the things that we'd like to see changed. Well, I think that the action plan proposed for Northern Ireland includes ethnicity and disability. So you think that's a gap in your legislation? 
Definitely. So we've actually got a report coming out shortly called Broken Ladders, which identifies the structural barriers that are holding women of colour back in the workplace in terms of their pay and progression. And our recently published report, which was called Sex and Power, also shows that there are hardly any women of colour in positions across all sectors, with Broken Ladders really examining the reasons why that's the case. As you might know, the government has recently ruled out mandatory ethnicity pay gap reporting and instead they're just supporting a voluntary mechanism and developing guidance for employers who choose how to do it on how to report and what action to take. While that's a step in the right direction, we really don't think that voluntary reporting is sufficient. When gender pay gap reporting was voluntary, only 30 employers reported and now that it's mandatory, around 10,000 do so. I did hear a suggestion that the the companies which have fairly good records are the ones who are most keen to report and and go public. I think that's, you know, it's a fair enough point in the sense that organisations that have good stories to tell are definitely the ones who will be wanting to kind of highlight and demonstrate that. But I think as well, on the other side, the fact that we have 100% or near that compliance um, in the UK is also demonstrating that organisations know that they need to be doing this because it is the law um, and the EHRC is kind of following up with organisations where that isn't being done. I imagine that the restrictions of COVID uh, and held back some actions that you would like to have seen put in place. What has been the effect of the pandemic? So what we saw is that during COVID, of course, gender pay gap reporting was suspended. Um, And at the same time, we know that, of course, that COVID was having a disproportionate impact on women. So on the whole, more women than men were furloughed. They were more likely to experience an overall drop in earnings. They took on a greater share of caring responsibilities within their households. And they also reported high levels of anxiety, depression and loneliness. In terms of reasons why, of course, women are overrepresented in part time and low paid work. And also they're in the sectors that were hardest hit by lockdowns. So all of these things as well, we saw that for women of colour and those with a disability, um, it was amplified. Our research also shows that women from lower income backgrounds and younger women were also disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. So while all of this was kind of happening, um, we had a system that had been suspended and we weren't getting access to that crucial information that we really needed. Um, So we were campaigning with a bunch of other organisations in the sector to bring back gender pay gap reporting so we had access to that crucial information. I know you've looked at the, the situation outside the United Kingdom. Which country in your research has the ideal system which actually brings about a change in levelling up earnings? I think this is a really interesting question, only because there are lots of different countries which individually have really good things that are happening, um, but they haven't necessarily all come together and got a system that exists quite yet, which has those things present. And I think that's why it's a really exciting opportunity for Northern Ireland to lead the way and bring those things together. Um, So that research that I was referencing earlier, which was that comparative research piece, it found kind of individually, for example, the UK system was ranked quite lowly. It was a four out of 11, um, which was about the lowest ranked country alongside Australia, whereas Spain, for example, was an 8.5. And it really stood out because of its mandatory action plans. France came in second with an eight because it really stood out as well with its uh, enforcement and penalty regime. But then what we saw with South Africa, which only got a 5.5 out of 11, stood out because it had intersectional elements, um, which other countries didn't have. So I'd say that there's no one country which is doing everything uh, 
um, fabulously, but individually different countries have really strong aspects, which if Northern Ireland could bring together into its scheme, which mean would mean that it can be a world leader in the space. I love the fact that you have a ranking system for this, the, the measures in all those countries. That's brilliant. I'm going to turn back to Catherine now. Now, Catherine, there were plans for legislation in Northern Ireland. How radical are those plans? And of course, what stopped them in their tracks? So the Employment Act 2016 placed a duty on a government department to make regulations to require gender pay gap reporting in Northern Ireland, as well as publishing a gender pay strategy and action plan, which would help tackle some of those structural issues Alex has been discussing. There was a deadline of 2017 for all this, but obviously that's long since passed with the collapse of the Assembly and then COVID. The Employment Act means our regulations will go further than um, GB's rules in some areas. For instance, we will have a requirement to publish pay information relating to ethnicity and disability, and it is planned that our regulations will require employers to produce an action plan to eliminate those gender pay differences they have identified. There is also no requirement on the UK government to produce that all-important gender pay strategy that we will have here. So in the view of the Equality Commission, are those proposals strong enough, Catherine? So as things stand, the Employment Act gives us a somewhat vague direction, but there's a lot of gaps we are asking for a lot more clarity on what the regulations will involve. For instance, we would like to know why the Act references ethnicity and disability and not factors like age and having dependence, when there's a lot of evidence that the arrival of children accounts for the gradual widening of the gender pay gap with age. So much of this will rely on Northern Ireland having a strong strategy, which addresses those big structural barriers like childcare, the concentration of men and women in different sectors, careers advice, and the big underlying issue, gender stereotypes. We are calling for gender pay gap regulations to be brought in as a matter of urgency and for a gender pay strategy to be implemented and delivered to address the structural factors that lead to the gap. It's also important that there is a review of the regulations after they come in. We're suggesting after about five years so we can see how they're working and where they can be made stronger. Alex, going back to you, our MLAs are the people with the power to make changes. What would you say to convince them that the time is right for gender pay gap reporting? COVID-19 has amplified pre-existing structural inequalities that are disproportionately impacting women. And we're now at a critical crossroads in the sense of widening gender inequality. We know that gender pay gap reporting is a critical tool in the collection of data. It helps us to understand the scope and scale of a problem, which is critical in the development of targeted policy solutions. Uh, On top of that, as I've already mentioned, I think this is a really exciting opportunity for Northern Ireland to develop a world-class leading system and really be looked upon as a leader in this space. Well, my thanks to Alex Shepherd from the Fawcett Society and to Catherine McNichol from the Equality Commission. If you enjoyed this podcast, then you might be interested in a whole range of episodes now published online by the Equality Commission. You can find them on the Commission's website or wherever you find your favourite podcasts.